Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Well, here we are, another episode of MASH Matters Podcast. Hello, I'm Ryan Patrick, alongside Mr. Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan Patrick. How are you? Hey, what uh, episode is this? I kind of forget. I, I think we're up to episode 10 now. I think we've hit double digits. Holy moly. And that's as a result of everybody out there loving this podcast. And if this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, why? For God's sakes, it's been too long. What are you waiting for? Gee whiz. Well, if you, if this is the first time, I am Jeff Maxwell. You know, I'd like to just say something about my illustrious partner, Ryan Patrick. It is Ryan Patrick, right? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Yes. Uh, or we, Patrick Ryan, or either Patrick way. Ryan, he is an incredible... I go by, any, I go by anything, that, yeah. That's your army name, by the way. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick Ryan. <laughs> we'll get into that. He's an incredible broadcaster and a, uh, a marketing genius and a director. He's directing plays right now. You're very talented, Ryan. My gosh, where do you get the energy to do all this? I can't get to my garage, let alone direct plays and things. Wow. It's called caffeine, Diet Mountain Dew, right there. Thank you very much. Well, as you know, Ryan, and you are a major MASH fan, mm -hmm. and I was on the show MASH. You were? I was. <laughs> um, God, that's two of us that didn't know that, <laughs> so that's unbelievable. <laughs> I did play the role of Private Eager. I used the role lightly. It was more like a biscuit. But anyway. Oh, yes. You know, we are very excited on this 10th broadcast of MASH Matters to have a guest that is truly, truly uh, one of the great writers of our century. Oh, well, thank you. Let me, let me get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John, could you get that guy on it? No, one of the, uh, a, a truly nice guy, I have to say, uh, a guy I never met on the set, and we'll get into why hmm. uh, in a minute, but a, a gentleman who wrote uh, a lot of MASH episodes, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read off of his credit just for the heck of it because he did send me his uh, his bio, and I'm gonna read it because it's very impressive. It's 17 network pilots he wrote for Night Court, Gung Ho, MASH, The Odd Couple, All in the Family, Mod, Lily Tomlin, and kind of one of my favorites, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-Ins. He's won awards, four People's Choice Awards, three Humanitas Awards. Is that right? Humanitas. Well, it is late. I did have a martini. Okay, I'm sorry. One Golden Globe, eight Emmy nominations, five WGA awards. He's a terrific guy and a, uh, a good friend now after we've talked all about how to get on this podcast. I'd like to introduce Mr. John Rappaport. John, thank you for being on our podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jeff and uh, Ryan. All of you guys are great. And uh, I can, first of all, start off with how you got your last name on the show. That would be really cool. Of course, Igor was always referred to was as always the guy Igor. As Igor. Yeah. I was uh, also just uh, as the producer is under Bert Metcalf, who was the exec producer, and I was the supervising producer and the head writer. That's where all my trouble began. <laughs> yeah. When we were doing a, an episode, I think it was probably season seven or eight or whatever it is, and there was a story was about the reenlistment officer. And we had always been writing stuff for Igor. There was always a Hawkeye would go and he would ask, you know, what he liver or fish or what have you. Mm -hmm. So now the, re the enlistment officer comes and he talks to Igor. 
And someone, there's always someone who knows Army stuff and says, you know, the enlistment officer is not allowed. He always refers to soldiers by their last names. And, you know, and there was a silence in the room that we had about usually five or six of us in the room. We said, what is Igor's last name? It was dead silence. You know, Bert, who had been with the show since day one, knew everything like that. And he looked at me and he said, he doesn't have a last name. <laughs> <laughs> we never gave him one. It was always Igor, you know, and then Hawkeye would do a line and then Igor would throw some food at him or something like that. <laughs> so he said, well, we got to come up with it. Then you've got to come up with a last name. And then Bert, of all people, <laughs> the great guy who also could be very funny. Uh, he said, how about Straminsky? <laughs> As in Igor Straminsky yeah. in the Firebird Suite, which everybody would know. Anyway, and it was a unanimous yes. So that was it. That's how you got your last name, basically. So it's wow. A, I don't know if you knew that, and I don't a know. A unanimous if... yes for Straminsky. Cool. And I owe Bert Medcap. That's really cool. Thank you, Bert. Yeah, I don't generally usually give somebody credit for great lines that weren't mine, but uh, Bert came up with them. So <laughs> straight. So can we go back just for a little bit and and find out a little bit about your past? How did you become? Uh, who you are? Wh where did you start? What? What? I mean, did you get into show business because you wanted to meet girls, or you? What? What was it about? <laughs> what, what brought you? That? That's why most actors get into show business. So, <laughs> what brought you to the writing end of it? Well, prior to that, I, I had already met one or two girls, so that was okay. okay. Now, okay. I actually, again, this sounds sketchy. I was a co-class clown in high school. I <laughs> uh, did uh, a version of stand-up with a good friend and. Um, then I went to Indiana University, a school that I grew to love imaginatively and greatly. Uh, so I started out uh, just majoring in accounting. Huh. And after about one year, uh, there was a thing called the IMU, which is Indiana Memorial Union Radio Club. And you'd get a radio show if you go went there. So I joined that uh, and I changed to be a radio and TV major, which was in the arts and sciences school, whereas accounting was in the uh, non-arts and sciences. That was in the general business school. So I uh, changed that in my sophomore year and did a radio show, played mostly, I'd say, 98% jazz. I was a jazz freak and loved that sort of stuff. But uh, um, and when I then graduated, uh, uh, I decided to go, you know, stay being a disc jockey. I did some stand up and I emceed some shows and stuff like that. But uh, uh, then I moved on back to the Chicago area um, where I was had a, a middle road show. No rock and roll for me, but uh, even though I loved it when I was younger. But but you had a sense about yourself as a young guy that you were funny. Is that right? You were you had a a, a sense of wanting to be funny and like people making people laugh. Uh, well, yes. I mean, they don't kick you out of class for being serious. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they say, "Oh, Mr. Rappaport, you're very serious. So could you please go see the principal?" So, uh, but I still I love my radio career obviously i love being on the radio and uh but i did not uh, the chicago weather even though i loved chicago the the winters were horrid mm -hmm. and it was one, on new year's eve uh, i was driving home from a party at two in the morning in a snowstorm on the tri-state tollway and i got a flat tire had to change the tire in a suit and two days later i quit my job at the radio station and moved to los angeles <laughs> where i knew absolutely no one except a, biz a bizarre aunt that lived somewhere that i had never a cousin or something uh. other than that and i kind of st staggered around for about two years doing things i emceed a couple of things it was in a comedy workshop and then i met 
a guy, there was a man on the air at this point. He was not well-known nationally. His name was Gary Owens. Yes. And uh, he had he had far and away the best radio show in Los Angeles. He was hilarious. He was fabulous. He had worked everywhere. And I went to a uh, commercial recording because I was writing radio spots at the time. And I met him. We went out for coffee and uh, we sat down at a pancake house or something like that. After about half an hour, he said, uh, hey, you're pretty funny. Uh, do you want to do some interviews? Hmm. And I went across back to the radio station, which was uh, KMPC, where Gary was. We did that. I then became his kind of sidekick on the air. Wow. With another young, another, I was like 23 at the time, and there was another young fellow there who had just come in. He had just changed his name from Albert Einstein <laughs> to Albert Brooks. Oh, okay. wow. So it was Albert wow. and I, and we were doing things. And Gary, who was, besides one, he became Jonathan Winter straight man. He got on laughing, all that. I mean, he was unbelievable and the nicest human being in, in history. Oh, that's uh, great. We became very good friends, and... Uh, Whatever was going on in the news that day, uh, you know, Gary would take it to pick it up and we just would improvise ad lib everything. And he would say, well, you know, the Beatles are in town and uh, we're very fortunate we have the Maharishi with us here today. <laughs> and, you know, he stays looking at me. I'm sitting on, we were on a card chair in his in his studio. And uh, he said, uh, hello, Mrs. Maharishi. And he says, oh, hello, Mr. Evans. <laughs> you know, and I had. Back then, I could do all these bizarre voices. I was a Maharishi Gourmet Foods, and my, my wife's name was Della Rishi, and my son was the baseball-playing kid named Peewee Rishi. All of this was completely improvised. Yeah. Gary introduced me to a man named Lou Weitzman, who became my agent, who about six months later said, they're looking for writers on Laugh-In. Mm. And I said, oh, really? I said, uh, what are they, when do they need this stuff? He said, tomorrow. Oh. I had written, I had nothing. The show, that was its first main season at Laugh-In, and I stayed up all night just writing jokes, because it was a great show at that point, and I turned it in, and um, Lou called back, and he said, uh, George Slaughter loved your stuff. Uh, he wants to talk to you. Wow. Went to the meeting like this. I had never been to one of those show business meetings before, yeah. and uh, so I, I got all dressed up like I was going for a job as a copywriter for an ad agency. I wore a tie and a, a sport jacket and slacks and everything like that, and I walk in there's two guys with beards and sweatshirts and jeans. <laughs> An interview for about a half an hour. Got a call about a week later, and uh, Lou said, uh, John, uh, they want to put you on staff on Laughing. Hmm. Wow. So after I got done fainting, then I uh, went there and we did, uh, you know, Laughing. That was the first main season. The first big season was in the summer. And then I did the the first the four years on Laughing on the staff, and they put me with a partner who I had never met before, another young guy. He was great. And the other great thing is that I always liked writing laying down. I like it as I am at this moment right now. I'm in bed. Oh. Uh, and <laughs> oh, thank you for that. I did not use a typewriter for anything. Even the stuff I turned into laughing, I also wrote it all out longhand on a legal pad huh. and then typed it up and turned it in. Wow. So anyway, so and he loved to when I walked in the first morning, he was sitting there behind a little typing desk, you know, and so. Uh, he typed all the stuff for four years, and I <laughs> laid on the couch, and we just did that stuff together. How did, how did that work? Did they did, did they say, "Hey, we want jokes about you know uh, chicken or something"? Did they give you a guidance, or you yes. just come up with wacky ideas? No, not at all. I mean, it was uh, George would get us together at the first thing in the morning, and he'd say, "All right," uh, he said, uh, "Rappaport and Spears, uh, I need." Uh, 
uh, three joke wall jokes, uh, four sketches, and two runners. A runner was things with the same setup that goes eight times during the episode. Okay. And, uh, and then he would give it, there was five, five teams of two guys, you know, others are very Alan Katz, Don Rio, who all became major writers in the long run. Uh, there was a couple of veteran writers there who were great, Larry Siegel, who had written for Mad Magazine and all that. Uh, so I turned it in, you know, we went to George and said, here's the stuff. He says, this can't be any good. It's, how you, it's two hours, whatever. <laughs> and Larry then said, you can't do that. What you do is you get your stuff done and then you sit around till the end of the day and then bring it in. <laughs> so that's what, that's what we did. Uh, we, we learned that very rapidly, you know, and uh, I never, I never typed a word for four years. You know, this was before computers because now I'm a very good typist on a computer, but uh, by the I never met Dan and Dick huh. the entire four years. Really? Yeah, that's the thing. We didn't realize that with writers. But later on, I was doing a show and Dick Martin was the director on it. And we became best friends. So wow. <laughs> it was great. Dan, I never met Dan. Ever. Oh, really? So, uh, wow. Yeah, that was it. So anyway, four years of that. And then um, I moved. I was with the William Morris office where Lou was. And, uh, and I get the call. But he had left the Morris office to open his own agency. And they, but they wouldn't let me go because I was under contract. There's all these strange things if you leave an agent or whatever it is. And so they gave me a new guy uh, and I called him up and uh, uh, and he said he got on. He had just come out of the mail room, which is where the agent started, the William Morris Agency or anywhere else. And uh, I said to him as well, I, you know, I've been doing a sketch for four years. I'd like to write some half hours, some sitcoms. And he yells back at me. He says, you're a sketch writer. We're not going to get you. Maybe you do an interview at the Carol Burnett show, but that's it. So I, I ended up using a legal thing uh, to get out of my contract at William Morris so I could go with Lou. Turns out that that new agent that yelled at me was a guy named Michael Ovitz. <laughs> so, yeah. oh, God. I wonder what ever happened to him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but Lou he introduced me to Don Nickel, who was the at that time the head writer on the uh, the new hot show, which was all in the family. Uh, so he asked me again, uh, you know, he said, have you ever written a, a half hour? And at the, the only thing I had ever written, I'd never really thought about being a writer particularly, uh, but I, I wrote once I wrote a spec get smart, hmm. but that was it. Other than that, I'd never, but I went home and he said, Don said to me, he said, can you give me like a couple of pages of Archie and Mike dialogue? Ah. And I said, yeah, well, they're, they're, those are great characters. So I went home and never done this before, sat down on a legal pad as usual, still no typewriter in my you life. Were, you were laying and out, you were in bed, right? With a legal pad. I was in bed with a legal pad. Yeah, that sounds like, well, that's my that's sexual That's why I pro, didn't mean to bring that up. So yeah, so, yeah. Right. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, uh, I turned that in. Don said, I love this. Let's, uh, I want to give you a story. Go pitch a story. So I pitched a story. I went in with, the, then it was Don and John Rich, who was the producer of the show and all that. And I wrote an episode uh, and I turned it in. And a, a week later, Lou Weitzman called me and he said, John, they want to put you on staff. Wow. My goodness. So I went to work on the staff and I was like the kid in the group and they introduced me my secretary or that was before the days of assistance uh -huh. she was a secretary and um, 
Three months later, uh, I moved in with her. <laughs> We've been married for about oh. 45 years now. So so she's got the job is what you're saying, huh? Yeah, she did a, she did a great job. But the, you know, so, wow. And uh, she hates the story. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that must have been pretty cool to come out and, and do what you did and all of a sudden to be asked to be on a staff of a show. I mean, was that pretty exciting? It was, um, yeah, it was fabulous, you know, because I loved it. I mean, the first thing, you know, the the, the last material that I wrote overnight. I had been writing a radio syndicated show, plus doing all this stuff with Gary. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, then after four years of laughing, you know, getting in, getting the shot at all in the family and it all, that all happened. I was on a panel with Don Nickel, who was one of Lou's other clients. And he was the main writer for all in the family, which at that time was in, I think, second season. He's the one that said, could you give me a page of dialogue with Archie and Mike? Yeah. You know, the rest is, <laughs> that's it, ended up on all in the family. So from there, I did, uh, uh, the Odd Couple. I was on staff. That was a wonderful uh, experience. I loved uh, Jack and Tony, but basically I had also become uh, extremely close friends with a man named Al Molinero. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who you may know better as Murray the Cop. Yeah. Al had a collection agency. I met him at a comedy workshop. He was 20 years older than me. And uh, we ended up, we were writing a movie and we ended up, uh, you know, being, wrote three pilots together. And I loved this guy. He was a phenomenal human being and, and unbelievably funny. You, you know what Murray looked like and all that stuff. And he could do that. So that was uh, basically where the career went and become friendly with Gary Marshall, who I played basketball with every Saturday morning for about 30 years in his backyard. He had a whole thing. Mm. Gary was a wonderful guy. And, you know, there's not a lot of wonderful guys in the business. So don't think I'm going to sit there and praise everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I was very lucky. Yeah. So uh, that's that's my life story. From basically, that's it. It's uh, well, it's not quite your life story. There's a little <laughs> thing called some mesh. Other, some others. Well, I was about to get to that. I, yeah. There's an interesting thing to that. I had done All in the Family, and I had done The Odd Couple, and I was now working writing, and I wrote a couple of pilots. Then I got the. I had a call in. I also helped two young guys get started because one of them was a college friend of my, now my wife. And there was another guy that had worked at uh, KMBC Radio who was phenomenally talented and done sports scores and stuff. And it was Isaacs and Levine, Ken ah. and David, who ended up uh, doing MASH at one point, and they apparently recommended me or whatever it is. And I was doing another show, which that's also an interesting story. I had just been doing pilots. And then I came home and I got a call about, they said, Joe Namath is in a sitcom called Waverly Wonders. <laughs> and I said, yeah, good for that. That's wonderful. <laughs> what is it? Is it? You know, and I said to my agent, I said, they said, well, they wanted, they just fired the producers and they want somebody to replace them. And the, you got good recommendations. And I said, Lou, just ask for something that's ridiculous, that they'll have to say, no, I don't want to do it. Yeah. So, and usually when you want to do a deal, it's about four years in negotiations. <laughs> I go back half hour later, I get a call from Lou. He said, well, I spoke to Mark Merson, who's the exec producer of the show, and uh, you're hired. <laughs> so it was for this, you know, the, but it was for the exactly the ridiculous offer that I that I wanted, but not to do that. So yeah. it went in there. And by that time, they had fired the producers. All the scripts were, I think they had a 13. It was called Waverly Wonders. Joe played, uh, it was a fan of his as a sports, you know, as a sports guy, but uh, he was a great quarterback, but he was not an actor. Anyway, <laughs> so it was called Waverly Wonders, and all of the first drafts had gone out already. 
to the uh, the writing staff and the producers that had just gotten fired. And I just there was just two guys left on the staff. Are you ready for these names? Mm-hmm. One of them was Thad Mumford. Uh. The other was Dan Wilcox. Uh. Nice. And I believe Dan was on your show, as a matter of fact. Yes. Yes, he was. So we spent about two <laughs> two weeks trying to get all of the scripts were out. So we tried to save them and go work with I, I did have fun with Joe on the set because one set was a basketball court. And I love basketball, so we <laughs> did that. But the show was really lousy and all that stuff. And uh, Joe's best friend uh, was a very good actor, uh, and he played a part of a philosophy teacher in the high school. And so we wrote one good joke. Joe always wanted the punchlines, and Jim was extremely funny, and Joe <laughs> was Joe, you know? <laughs> and so and there was one punchline that, because he was a, this other guy was his philosophy teacher, Joe could not pronounce existentialism <laughs> so <laughs> but he still insisted on the punchline so anyway so that was basically it we did that the show went off the air in about uh, maybe five or six weeks of episodes of filming and all that and justifiably so yeah. uh and at that point isaacs and levine were had been doing mash Ken and David, who were guys, as I say, friends of, of mine from early days. They were much, you know, 10 years younger than me, and I helped them get started in the business. And uh, they recommended me, and I came over and met Gene Reynolds, and, uh, you know, he talked to me, and he said, I want to hire you to be the head writer and, uh, you know, co-producer of the show. Hmm. Wow. And I said, oh, really? You know, so. What, what is, uh, just so people, because they're listening, may not know what the heck those things are. What does head writer mean? What does that mean in terms of the. Well, basically, the, well, I was a producer and head writer. The head writer is the guy that handles, that's in charge of getting all the scripts together. In our case, we wrote all of the stories. Usually it's like other writers come into a show and they pitch stories and try to get it together. We thought it was much easier. We would write the story thoroughly and find a writer, you know, and prior to that, we would bring in a writer that we really liked, you know, who was really good. I'd read scripts from somebody, people like uh, Dennis Koenig. Okay. So I, these names mean anything to you, <laughs> Igor? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, and that was a thing. So, and then I had also met Gene Reynolds, who was a great guy, and they were doing, but they had nobody. Ken and David had gone off to do another show. I think it was Cheers and everything. I said, we need a new head writer. And uh, John, I want uh, you to take the job. Okay. And I said, well, who's my staff? You know, and <laughs> I said, well, we only have uh, Ronnie is the one guy who was great, very funny. But, uh, uh, and other than that, there was nobody. And I said, do you know any writers? And I know that Dan will always give you a, probably a different story of this, but because uh, I know I heard him on your <laughs> podcast, and I said I worked with two guys that were terrific. They're really good, you know, and and their names are Mumford and Wilcox, and uh, so they didn't know who they were, and I guess they said, "Can you write a sample script?" They, they talked to them and all that stuff, and uh, obviously they wrote a hell of a sample script, which I think ended up beating one of mine for an Emmy the oh, first season they were on the show. <laughs> but so <clears throat> so I went over there from start. Oh, and also for the first. Six weeks that we were there, uh, Bert was had just gotten married and was on his honeymoon. So I went to MASH, and I had not been a huge MASH fan. I had watched it occasionally, but not, you know, there was other things to do on a Saturday night. <laughs> but Gene Reynolds was a phenomenal guy, and Bert Metcalf was a hell of a good guy. And so um, that was it. But we, we kind of put uh, spent the first four weeks putting our staff together and, and, and Ronnie Graham, you know, so that was it. And You so, were with the show for four years, right? Yeah, four years. I, I wrote I wrote Laugh-In off the air, and I wrote MASH <laughs> off the air. Well, thank you very much. That 
how sweet of you. <laughs> sure, everybody appreciates that. Well, it's funny because uh, you know we we talked before we did this about we you and I didn't really see each other because you were always off in a writer's room and you never kind of came down to the set that much, really. Rarely, yeah. And it was uh, I mean it was a great set that they would always and they never improvised anything, yeah. which I had said to later on. I said, Alan Alda never changed a line without running it by the writing staff. Yeah. Mm. He was wonderful to work with. I wrote a script with Alan, you know, just the two of us. Also, we did Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. We all did it with Alan. Uh, he was wonderful. You know, I had gone from Carol O'Connor, who was a, well, let's say very good as Archie, but not as a human being. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, and Alan was wonderful. He was always helpful, you know, never messed around with all the writing and was a great writer by himself. So not a lot. If anybody who knows me will know I'm not going to sit there and rave about a lot of actors, but uh, I have nothing bad to say about Alan Alda. Mike Farrell was a hell of a good guy, too. So it's, uh, you know, we were very lucky. Even this guy that I think was Igor, was it the name the of the character? Igor or, something or like that? Igor? I'm not sure. Never, never heard of him. Don't know him. Never heard. Yeah, of him. I think he he lived in the valley. <laughs> he so did. Oh well, to heck with that. Uh, <laughs> he uh, used to run on to you at the Gelson Supermarket. Got- so, uh, <laughs> so I, that's another show I wrote off the air. Gelson you know, Four Seasons. I didn't know. I was, oh, is it? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no Gelson's is still on the air. Oh. <laughs> You're making a lot of money, as a matter of fact. No, we voted to. You know, it was a close vote, but uh, you know, I wanted. I didn't want to do any more. You know, because why screw around with it? Why get end up with Archie Bunker's place, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, which is what ruined all in the family when uh, Carol wanted to do it without Norman. And, you know, it was terrible. So basically that was, you know, and we all did the movie with Alan and it turned out never dreamed that it would be the final episode would be what it was in terms of setting all kinds of, it still has the biggest audience in the history of show business with the exception of about three or four Super Bowls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly not the last one. Uh, (laughs) I don't even want to talk about the last Super Bowl, but uh, the last one. So, you know, you told me an interesting story about the fact that you, you know, everybody wrote uh, Goodbye, Farewell and Amen. And then you had to go back and kind of recreate a lot of the story issues for the episodes that followed that. Well, that was the interesting thing about that. The, you know, we, there was, you know, half of us voted. I voted. I said, you know, this is enough. I don't want to end up writing Archie Bunker's place. You know, and I don't want to write, end up writing a Hawkeye's place. Yeah. You know, so we did the final season, but we didn't know we were going to have to write the movie before the final season. You know, we all got together and uh, uh, and they said, and Alan's going to write it with each one of you. We're going to divide it all up and do the show and put it together. We had no idea. And we had a whole season ahead of us. So we go back to the office now after this thing. I don't even, it's between seasons, actually. But uh, so the first, and Bert Metcalf, again, I give him another credit. Uh, he said, okay, we well, got to come up with this story. And then we have to write into it with like 12 episodes, you know? So and then he said, so, okay, of all the people in the MASH outfit, uh, who would be the only one that would stay in Korea? Within 30 seconds, all of us at once said, Klinger, <laughs> you know? And of course- which was a great idea. We all agreed. And then we said, now how the hell do we get him to stay in Korea? Mm. You know, and then we wrote the story. And one of the things was, well, he falls in love with a Korean girl, which became Soon Lee, mm-hmm. you know, who be also became a friend of my wife. So, you know, that, but she was wonderful. And we put together and each one of us did a segment. Pollock and Davis did one. I did one. Uh, Dennis Koenig did one. And all of Karen Hall did one. But Alan was with us 
in every segment. We, we had written the story, as we always did. We wrote very thorough stories. It's so much easier to rewrite a script when you've written the story you know, very intricately. And that's what we did. We never bought a writer. We brought writers in that we thought were good writers. If they didn't have an idea that we could use, didn't matter. We'd, we'd do, we wrote all the stories ourselves. It was much easier to do rewrites anyway that way. I, and I was the head writer in charge of all that. And of course, Bert, when he was there, he was the main starker and all that, but he directed a number of episodes. And I was basically in charge of all of this sort of stuff when Bert wasn't around. Yeah. Just real quick, I want to run down the list of the episodes that you wrote. Diehard MASH fans will, will recognize these titles. I did some of the most rundown scripts that you can think of. There we go. Period of adjustment. Dear Uncle Abdul, Morale Victory. Uh, you had the teleplay credit for Death Takes a Holiday. No Sweat, Oh How We Dance, The Life You Save, The Joker is Wild, Say No More, and Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. Now, from that list, is there any particular episode that really stands out to you? Well, for sheer comedy, I've always been loved No Sweat. Mm -hmm. And that's... Um, it, it was about there was a heat wave going on, and it was. I, I take pride in there were seven stories in that out that emphasis, and nothing serious. We always usually had one serious story, and then one comedic story, mm -hmm. and all that. But this was all silliness, and it was the hot, and uh, you know Margaret was great, and uh, you know, Potter was sensational as usual. So <laughs> Harry was always great, and that's the episode where Igor brings the fan over and, and ruins all of oh, uh, Winchester's tax yes. papers. Yes, <laughs> Winchester's doing his tax. That was one of the seven stories. And my, one of my favorite jokes that nobody really understands anyway. But Potter takes a sleeping pill because he can't, uh, you know, a sleeping. Problem. So then everybody keeps coming up to having to wake him. And Harry, who was brilliant anyway, you know, he didn't know that. So did you put the cat out, Margaret? You know, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Winchester was doing his income tax returns with his wealthy family, spreading the papers all over the mess tent on the tables. Mm -hmm. and, and so and so everybody has to go to Klinger, who's taken the PA system apart just to see, because he said, uh, you know, when the war is over, people come marching home and there'll be broken television sets all over the place. <laughs> I don't want to go into that business. But whatever. And Jamie was wonderful. We became very good friends. Uh, and we were, we were going to go on the road after MASH was over. But then he got that job doing the George Burns play. And uh, that was it. And I still love Jamie. And anyhow, uh, Styers, Winchester. Uh, oh, and, and through this Mulcahy is bothering him. Is kibitzing with him during the whole episode, and and but the, is, uh, what was it? He says I, I'm being audited for countless counts for which not I can I count. <laughs> so whatever <laughs> David always would give you a reading you didn't expect yeah. anyway. But uh, uh, he said, but he needs carbon paper. So he goes to Klinger, who's got the PA system all over the floor. And he says, I need carbon paper. You know, and Klinger looks up. He says, I'm sorry, but uh, carbon paper is in the safe, and only the Colonel can open the safe. And Winchester said, or David says, says, carbon paper in the safe? Oh, my goodness, what a brilliant idea. In only three million years, it will be diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> An intellectual joke there. But, yeah, yeah, you know, diamonds sure. are carbon over a century, like millions of years of centuries. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that was the thing. And so that was my favorite sheer comedy. I just tried to do There's six or seven stories in it, which I thought was mm -hmm. a record for a half hour episode. Yeah. And, yeah. and they were all great. And uh, a lot of people always ask me, say, hey, was all that, you know, there was so much uh, and you kind of touched on it a minute ago. 
But people say, oh, gosh, did, did those actors, you know, improvise some of that stuff? I hear, you know, Hawkeye said so much funny things and so many funny things. And he was and I say, no, it wasn't improvised. And it wasn't because there were so many great writers writing those words. Well, thank you. And the, the great thing is, yes. And, and whenever I would do a show afterwards, you know, that's I always had the, you know, my associate producer would say, and John, when John was on laughing, Alan Alda wouldn't change a line. You know, unless they put it, took it to the writer's room, which is true. You know, they never screwed around with stuff. I don't you know. So that was all great. Meanwhile, other there's other shows where they, they're improvising all the time. Yeah. Uh, and it was always the team. Again, the, you had Thad and Dan and Dennis Koenig, Karen Hall. You know, and then we had Pollock and Davis. And these were all great writers. Great so writers. I was very lucky to be and, able And to, writing for a, a bunch of really great actors. Yeah. The favorite thing, besides Alan just being Alan, being a phenomenal human being and actor, yeah. Harry was so great. Yeah. And as <laughs> as a writer, and you probably remember seeing in scripts, when you when you you, you don't want you don't want the actor to interpret the line some way that you didn't intend it. Mm-hmm. So I would <laughs> would write something about it. And Potter was always like, uh, you know, well, I didn't expect much from you in the first place. So I, you know, and I would put down in parentheses under the thing facetiously. <laughs> and at the table when we read it, Harry would look at me. Oh, you know, it's funny. You wrote to do it facetiously. I was going to say it sincerely if you hadn't put that note down there for me. <laughs> and so actors don't like any parentheses or underlining stuff, you know, but no. for comedy, we, you know, sometimes you need emphasis or whatever it is. Yeah. But the thing that this one script that I felt very great about in terms of that I did myself was uh, morale victory, not the not the funny side of it, but the straight side. It was with the Styers, uh, and he and he operates on a kid. If you, I don't know if you remember this. Oh or not, yes. But there was a, and he becomes very braggadocious about it. he saved the kid's leg. He said, and he, the, the neurovascular bundle in his hand will be a little limited, but so, so what? You know, I saved his leg. And, and then he goes to see the kid, and the kid wakes up, and he's got a cast on his hand. He says, uh, uh, "He says, what's what's with my hand?" He said, "Oh, it'd just be a little little problem, but you you will walk again." You know, this was David being as you know obnoxious as we just could be. Mm-hmm. The kid goes crazy, and he said something. You don't understand. I'm a concert pianist. Yeah. yeah. So there was a, that was a totally destroyed Styers, and there were some wonderful scenes with David. And Mulcahy. Oh, yeah. And we used whoever came up with David talking into his tape recorder. That was a great way to get to learn about about Winchester without him giving anything away to, you know, to the people that were around him. So he was good. But and I still remember the words he said something about he felt terrible about doing this to this kid because he's, you know, a lover of it. David in real life also was a lover of classical music yeah. and all that stuff. So but but there's a couple of lines that I that I wrote. I feel very proud of uh, one is he said something about I have hands that can make a scalpel sing. Wow. I can play the notes, but I cannot make the music. Oh, okay, those are things when David said it, then there were just wonderful stuff there that hey, you know, may sound stupid when I say it, oh, but no, uh, no. David turned it in and it was so great. It's where he ends up finding the concerto for uh, written by uh, Ravel mm-hmm. for a one-handed pianist who had no no left arm or whatever it is. But that was great. I love that that episode. I felt very good about the, the stuff I did with the... Uh, Bill Christopher and uh, and David and David would always do great things with line and Bill was wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. we were just very lucky. You know, I've been on a lot of shows with a lot of you know pains in the ass, whether good actors or bad actors, whatever it is. They 
You know, so we're but, talking well, about Car was, Carol O'Connor again, is that right? <laughs> when you were doing MASH, I mean, MASH became such an iconic television show. Yeah. Um, did you did you have any sense at the time? I mean, I, I had my own feeling about it, but did you have any sense about it that it was going to be turn into what it has become? I, I had no idea. I hardly watched it because Saturday night, you know, was, and I'd never seen that main thing. When I first started, I said, who are these people laughing at, at, at people in Korea? You know, where's this audience coming yeah. from? Uh, so but I did not know. And I think and it was it was already in syndication. When, when I was asked uh, by Gene Reynolds to come and take it over. So we figured it was going to be good for about a year, you know, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and it was, it was already on the 1130 on CBS's, but then when it sort of became like an institution, I guess. Yeah. And there were times we would get the, the ratings would come out and it was being syndicated. Well, I think it was the only show at that time or the first one to be run in prime time while it was in, after it had gone into syndication on top of that. Hmm. And uh, so we, we came out and we'd get like the top 20 or something like that. And MASH would be in number one, seven and 12, you know, from <laughs> wow. Roanoke, Roanoke, Virginia, the top 40, whatever it yeah. is. And we did it and we had no idea about that stuff. And then, you know, we decided to take it off the air, even though CBS wanted us to continue, but half of us didn't want to, you know. So. Well, why do you think MASH has become such a, a monumental kind of a, an emotional thing to a lot of people watching the show and the feeling? That uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, you know, it's the, the anti-war thing. I, and again, it basically was because of Vietnam that there was so much feeling for what was going on. You know, Korea, not too many people knew all that was, you know, that, and it wasn't such a highly publicized thing like that. But uh, but it was very Vietnam, very Vietnam oriented. So that was mm -hmm. one reason. And and it was also incredibly well done with <laughs> these actors were all, you know, there wasn't one, you know, one guy in the in the group that you couldn't count on for great mm -hmm. stuff. The, you know, I mean, we know David was a classical actor from the, the English theater and all that sort of stuff. And people, by the way, thought that uh, Stiers was from Boston, that David was born and raised in Oregon. But yeah. <laughs> so, but no, but that's called, that's acting, you yeah. know, that's acting. Bert yeah. Metcalf was the one that uh, said uh, that he, you know, when uh, Burns left and they brought in David Stiers and, and I always felt that was good because it was the first person, you know, the, the anti-Hawkeye guy that could give him, that had the brains as opposed to Hot Lips and uh, Frank Burns doing all that. So I was never wild about that particular aspect of it, hmm. you know, but David was intelligent and he was a good surgeon, you know, well, yeah. neither Frank Burns was neither, you know, mm -hmm. and Bert said that, that he selected him because he had been in the closing episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show where he was the station manager who fired everybody. And yet you still liked him. So that, those are <laughs> yeah. little things from from the writing room that I remember, you know, whatever that Bert was the one that said, let's go with somebody who isn't, you know, a putz, you know, like Frank yeah. Burns. I wasn't there when, when they changed it or anything like that. He was already on the staff, but he was, he was terrific, you know? So, uh, it was just excellent actors. You know, I, I never met Wayne Rogers until afterwards. Uh, either I stand, you know, Trapper was good and Mike Farrell was a wonderful human being. Yeah. When you talk about Alan Alda, and a lot of people ask me about Alan Alda as well. And he's a, Obviously, I knew him for, I was there nine years. I knew him for nine years, a terrific human being. What was it like to work with him in terms of being a writer? How did that work for you? 
first of all, when you write with Alan, he's brilliant. Secondly, you eat great. <laughs> you either go for Chinese food or you go yeah. to his house where his wife has made some great food. So Alan is a really good guy. You know, it's uh, very surprising. You know, so uh, uh, that was it. I, I, I have, you know, people who know me know I don't run around raving about actors. You know, Lily Tomlin was a phenomenal human being and great to work with. I did her first special. But other than that, a lot of actors are a pain in the ass. So that's a basic <laughs> writer's point of view, you know. So it's. Uh, well, okay. Uh, what do you think of television comedy today? Do you see something that you think, boy, that really stands out? This is terrific or that sucks? And. You know, you can say it because there's only two people listening to this. So whatever you say. <laughs> well, who's, who's the matter. other one? Who's, who's the second guy? And my, my dog, my dog went outside. Shit. Well, oh, it's a, uh, no, actually, there is a show that came out with the Emmys uh, that we got. You know, we get the DVDs come out and and a friend, my wife, Lee, is, is a friend of hers, is uh, uh, the wife of a guy who was a DP on a show. And she said, he says, you got to see this show called The, the Amazing Mrs. Meisel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever even heard of it. We yes. well, we watched. It's about it's about a woman who becomes a sitcom star in the era of Lenny Bruce. I don't know if mm-hmm. you, whatever it is. And we watched the first one, and we ended up watching it in two nights. It was so mm-hmm. good, you know. We got the, uh, and that was so good. And I told my friends, I have a breakfast with a bunch of guys who are writers and stuff like that. And I said, you've got to see this, the the amazing Mrs. Meisel and everything. It turned out it won about ninety three Emmys. So yeah. you know, I felt good about <laughs> that. Deservedly so. It? It's really good. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's really well done. Hey, John. Um, I read a story a while back on. Ken Levine's blog about a stunt that you pulled on the network brass oh. when CBS was set to premiere Trapper John MD. Can you tell about okay, that? Yes. When we first came there, Bert was already back and everything like that. And I mentioned something about the, something, Trapper John MD. And, you know, they said, oh, yeah, well, Glicksman and Brinkley, they're doing a show about uh, where, you know, Trapper John goes, becomes a surgeon 20 years later. And in the meantime, our CBS guy, Chuck, who was wonderful, basically, you know, I don't say a lot of great things about network executives, but he was terrific and all that. And they said some occasional, oh, you reminded me of another story, which I will tell, but say originally they wanted to know. For, and this, I think this was a Thad and Dan's first script where there's a guy, they come, they come to the, the, uh, the unit and, and they're, they're looking for something. They think somebody, this is the McCarthy era. And they, are you now Margaret? Yes. Yeah. Are you now Margaret? He said, are you, you know, somebody in your unit is a communist. Yes. And, you know, and you go through the whole first act, you know, everybody thinks it's going to, it's Hawkeye that they're investigating in the Joe McCarthy era. And, and the, the button at the first act, which is of course button is a, you know, comedy writing. That's the thing that grabs you to get everybody to come back. Yeah. The button is that it's Margaret. It's hot lips. You know, and I just so wrote down as a fear of the, you know, that and that send the thing to CBS and I'm watching football or something like that the Sunday beforehand. And they come on with a promo that says, hot lips, a commie. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that was, so they blew the whole first act. Uh, right? So we oh, said, oh, gosh. Uh, but the one that, that Ken wrote was, they would ask us to, you know, write, uh, you know, what, what was coming on to the uh, episodes, uh, you know, just give us three or four, because they didn't care. You know, when I, I ended up doing a show called Gung Ho and they would, ABC would read everything and to slash the story to ribbons, you know. So, but in this case, this was way before that. It was with Matt. But I said, what is Trapper John MD? 
you know, and there was no, you know, there was no Wayne Rogers on the show when I was there anyway, but it had nothing to do with him specifically, but the character, he said, oh, well, Glicksman and Brinkley are, are doing a show that takes place 20 years later where, you know, Trapper John is now a very prominent surgeon in the Bay Area. And we offered him some notes or anything. They didn't even bother to read them. So when Chuck Schnabel <laughs> asked for little descriptions, I wrote this three-sentence outline, which just says, Hawkeye goes to pieces when he learns that his old friend, Trapper John, was killed in a car accident in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it. You know, I just wrote that in and write, you know, the other three little story outlines. And so it's about like two or three weeks later, phone rings. My secretary says, this is John uh, Chuck is on the phone. And I said, what? And everybody was in the writer's room, as we usually were, always were, except the guys were doing the scripts or whatever. So I pick up the phone and, uh, and Chuck, is, he sounded totally panicked. <laughs> he says, John, uh, this thing about so long, and I, the, the episode that I say was named So Long Old Buddy. And, and he said, so it's, it's, it's about, and he's stammering, he says, it's about so, so long old buddy. You know, now I put my hand over the mouthpiece. I said, <laughs> I said to the rest of the guys in the room, I said, he's calling about so long, old buddy. <laughs> I said, and I said, yeah, so what about it? And he said, well, well we're, we're, we're doing a show with Trapper John 20 years later, and you've got him being killed in this episode. <laughs> and Bert said, hey, has nothing to do with us. <laughs> and we're all on the floor at this point. You know? And finally, I said, Chuck, I got to tell you, we just made that up because they're doing the show. We knew about it. But, uh, and subsequently, Ken Levine, with this blog, which is a, you know, is it a, an award-winning blog, somebody asked him, what was the best practical joke ever done on mesh and you know, i had forgotten about it huh. you know but he wrote about the so long old buddy you know so that was <laughs> that was that that's classic and we had a lot of fun in the writing room and but we all knew, also knew that we were getting an incredible product done we wrote all the stories very thoroughly so that it was so much easier and we just picked and supposed to taking writers who pitched a story that we liked you know, we, we, we pretty much put a story, if they could give us something that we could use, it's great. But we basically, I would read a lot of scripts. And I said, whoever, you know, wrote this script is really good. Let's give him an episode. Whoever, it doesn't matter if he has an, if he has an idea, great. Mm -hmm. But if not, that's where I discovered a guy named Tom Reader. Mm -hmm. I wrote a really good, he wrote a really good script. And I read it, I brought him in. We became, you know, he did an episode. It was excellent. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a bulletin board there with all kinds of little three by five cards on it. They were all little bits and pieces of ideas. You know, as a clinger, clinger saves a Winchester from like and has to be a servant or whatever it is, you know, all kind of stuff. And we could find putting them together and then we'd write the stories very thoroughly, five or six pages of, of a story outline so that when we would get the script back. And we, and that's also where we, Pollock and Davis had done a couple of scripts for us. And we, you know, I pulled all kinds of strings with CBS. I gave them a pilot just so that they could come on, be on their staff for the final season or two. Mm. You know, they were very good, Elias and David. And we had Karen Hall came onto the staff in the later years. And I think one of the, you know, the MTM was using a lot of female writers. And this was the first woman that was involved with us, Karen Hall. And then, but it was just so easy to get along with the network at that. As I discovered doing a show for ABC later on. With you know, but uh, uh, you know, I realize obviously Mash was six. Oh, now here's the story, though. I will tell you this first thing. This is the history of Mash. There was a guy named uh, Richard Hornberger uh, who wrote a book. He was in the army at Korea, I guess it was about the you know about surgeons in the tent that he was in. It was called, and he called it Mash. Interesting idea, yeah. You know, and he changed his name to Richard Hooker. Nobody wanted to publish the book. 
finally he got it published, and of course, you know, as MASH, and it was a, a major bestseller. So they said, well, what the hell? Let's make a movie out of this. Yeah. And Robert Altman was the 15th or 16th director that they asked. All <laughs> the others had turned it down, uh. saying, what is this thing? So now Altman does the movie, needless to say, it's a, you know, it's a giant hit. Yeah. And then now Fox, because they had the movie, you know, they said, CBS said, well, now we got to put the show on the air. The movie was a hit, but who wants to watch a bunch of people in an army surgical hospital, you know, once like, we give them Mikhail's Navy, maybe, but that's it. <laughs> Fox didn't want to do it. So they put MASH in the smallest soundstage on the Fox lot. Uh, yeah. And, you know, thinking it's not, it's going to be gone in, you know, six months. Yeah. And subsequently I came aboard, it was the seventh season and they had a big party one weekend because they put a bathroom in the set. Okay. You, you, right. Where did you go to the bathroom? when you? I were don't want to say. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a big thing. By that point, they figured MASH was going to be okay. Yeah. You know, there was big, big arguments about the, about the laugh track. Yeah. And I guess this was all Bert and Larry Gelbart, who, by the way, I never, I never met Larry till afterwards. And he was apparently a genius. They loved Larry Gelbart. And uh, I was at a, in a lunch group with Sid Caesar and I uh, once asked him when he was doing show of shows, maybe when I was like five or whatever it is, I said, you had Woody Allen, Neil Simon, Carl Reiner, and, you know, a bunch of people, Mel Brooks were all on the writing staff for your show of shows. Who was the best writer you had? And Sid said to me, Larry Gelbart. Yeah. Mm. So, so I had some pretty good shoes to fill. Yeah. Guys, even though Larry had yeah. been gone for like three years at this point, it was Cats and Rio. And then it was, you know, Isaacs and Levine. And then it was me for the final four seasons. But uh, uh, I guess Larry was brilliant. Alan worshipped Larry. Yeah. And the, the, it's figures. So anyway, so that's pretty much it, I guess. So did you do anything else? I mean, is that it? I mean, nothing. <laughs> No, basically, I said, I said, this show is successful. There's probably going to be two guys calling me for about a nine hour podcast. <laughs> is this on? Yeah. <laughs> is this thing on? <laughs> yeah. Well, so you did an incredible thing. You worked on an incredible show. Is there something you want people who are major fans of MASH and I won't I, I won't say Ryan Patrick exactly. I won't say his name, but any major, you know, anything that you could say to them that you feel very passionately about what you did in the show? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, people say, you know, again, there's people today, many people, young people that have no idea what MASH was or whatever it is. But just recently, they sold it was on Netflix, you know, besides being in reruns and all that. It was on Netflix and then Hulu. They just paid Fox a billion dollars for a whole bunch of stuff. And MASH is one of the things that's on there. So it's still going. And I occasionally will go back on DirecTV where they list what's going to be airing for the next three weeks. So I just to go to check and see which of my shows will be running for some residual <laughs> money. You know, 1983, we're rewrapped and it's still around. And it is now on four cable channels, at least, at mm -hmm. least four channels, channels that DirecTV has. And I counted for the next three or four weeks, there will be 78 episodes of mesh shown on, wow. on direct tv and that's something so but it was an incredibly rewarding experience it was great and we we, we had no idea what was going to happen we knew the movie would be successful but nobody ever dreamed because it's still to this day you know the most watched television show in history with the exception of about four or five super bowls 
Other than that, it's the the final episode was uh, you know was watched by more people. They talked about how in New York, when Goodbye Farewell and Amen was airing, when there was a commercial, the water levels in New York City would go down four inches at the DWP. From everybody would be going to the bathroom <laughs> yeah. at the same time. <laughs> so, you know. It was it was a great experience, and it was, the other thing is that I've you know as I say we were all in the family. We had uh, some nice people like Gene Stapleton. We also had a Carol O'Connor, you know, and, and the odd couple. I I really enjoyed Tony Randall. Not everybody did, but <laughs> all the people on on Mash. There's not one person I didn't. G W Bailey and I still see each other, you know. Well, Alan, all the there's just no topping him. He was just a wonderful human being and unbelievably talented. So it's. Uh, it's there. I, oh, he once told me, by the way, that we talked about his, the difference was his father, Robert Alda, was a star. Alan mm-hmm. is an actor. Mm-hmm. But I, I mentioned his father, but his father's name was Roberto Debruzzi. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Alan's real name is Alfonso Debruzzi. Mm-hmm. You know, but Robert changed it to Robert Alda and he became Alan Alda. And so... Uh, you know, one time I said, Mr. DeBruzzi, may I have your <laughs> autograph? And he said, and Alan, who did, was not a person, he said he'd rather shake hands with you than give you an autograph. But I just jokingly, so I do somewhere have a thing, signature from uh, uh, Albert DeBruzzi, <laughs> you know, whatever it's worth. eBay, it's awesome. eBay, eBay. But I, I also have some, yeah. <laughs> well, no, not even, well, I oh. did, no, I did, I did auction, I've taken some, I have a ton of scripts of Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen scripts that I have here, hmm. but I also have two of them that were signed by the entire cast oh. one of which was was auctioned off for like nine thousand mm. dollars and i also brought home after a while one of potter's paintings yes which was of course done by a person on the crew and this is the one it was from the episode called picture this you know where it's the whole cast with the exception of, of harry of course because he's painting the picture is on a canvas and they would just get a prop guy a good you know talented prop guy to paint the picture. I put that up for auction. It's been in my office for like, you know, 15 years here and it sold for $24,000. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm going to miss it, but I couldn't really, you know. Not that much, however. <laughs> I have stuff I do. First of all, I have a laugh-in joke wall door. Oh, uh, how I, cool. I also have the clapboard. Bert was directing the final episode, which was where they buried the time capsule. Mm-hmm. And I had asked the, the script girl for it afterwards. And she, you know, there was everybody. The press was there. You know, well, you were there, obviously, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, when they wrapped, it was thousands of people were there. And Bert was directing. So I had to run the mob, basically, with everybody. And I asked her, I said, when mm-hmm. you wrap this thing, you know, can I have the clapboard? And she said, sure, you know, stupidly, you know, yeah. and so I have that. I have another sign that's hanging on the wall at Rosie's somewhere or another. So I, I have my hat and some dog tags and somebody's underwear. I don't know where that is or why I have it. No wonder it's so damn cold in there here. You Can I have it back, please? Well, John, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to, to talk to us for nine hours. And hey, and I hope that when Jeff and I start our Waverly Wonders podcast, that you'll come back and, and talk to us again. That was a great meeting you brian was, hey, uh, great talking to you thank you so much and jeff and, and it's nice meeting you john for the <laughs> finally <laughs> yeah we rarely left the writer's room thank you john rapaport it was very wonderful for you to come on and oh. i'm sure that every mash fan
fan who's listening to this is going to appreciate it, and we really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Okay, well, it was it was a pleasure. It was nice to be able to chat, especially with you, Jeff. That, thank uh, you. you know, makes me feel good. Thank you very much. So with, and the fact that I named you, you it's kind of like a birth thing, isn't it? I'm very, I'm I'm all at Twitter. Right, it was the funniest thing Bert ever said. <laughs> <laughs> Igor Straminsky. <laughs> okay, thank you, Bert. That's it. 